What is happening, everybody? Bob Wankel, Anthony Sanfilippo here, crossed up a Phillies podcast on the heels of the 2020 MLB draft. Anthony, uh, we have some stuff to talk about here today. We, we have four new Phillies uh, after Wednesday and Thursday night, and we are in the middle of kind of getting new developments on the labor negotiations between Major League Baseball and the Major League Baseball Players Association. It looks like we may finally be getting near a resolution. So let's jump into it. Uh, you know, first of all, do you, you know, have any any takeaways from what we saw with the Phillies draft? Brian Barber, amateur scouting director, his first draft here in Philadelphia. Uh, any any overall impressions, bigger picture thoughts? Well, I think that they, what the Phillies did is they did something that they don't normally do and they gambled, right? I mean, the one thing that we learned in previous years with the Phillies is they have always been a team that's looking to take players that are ready, you know, as close to being ready to major league ready as possible, almost sure things. They may not be, you know, the elite player that you're going to, that you're going to draft, but they're going to take guys who they know are going to be major league caliber. And we'll hope that they develop into something that's bigger than just major league caliber. Right. So this year they take the, uh, a couple of chances. You take it, you know, first high school pitcher taken in Nick Abel at number 15 Look, he's, we don't, I've never seen any of these kids pitch. You've never seen any of these kids play, right? Whatever. It's fine. But, you know, you're seeing some, some comps that you're like, holy shit, they're comparing this kid to, to Verlander, right? I mean, like, it's, like we're, it's Strasburg. Like, holy cow, how does that happen? Um, they took a chance on a kid who fell uh, with the, the, the shortstop. Casey Martin. Casey yeah. Martin fell, fell. It was supposed to be in like a high second rounder. He falls to the middle of the third rounder. They take, take a chance on a 6'8 pitcher uh, in the fourth round who maybe becomes something really special with his, with his fastball. Um, yeah, Carson Ragsdale. He uh, yeah. was a USF kid. And then in the, uh, the last pick that they had, they took Baron Ratcliffe, an outfielder, outfielder. Yeah. out of uh, Georgia Tech with big power. You know, I guess uh, – just kind of give you some thoughts here. I mean, if you're tuning into this and you want to know a little bit about the draft, I'll state this at the top. I don't want to pretend or make myself out or make Anthony out to be an MLB draft expert. I'm not. Um, but I can tell you that I've spent quite a bit of time, especially with Mick Abel over the last two days, going back and looking at some of his uh, film, looking at some of the video that he's put out there, uh, both in his own personal workouts and then really what he kind of was doing, uh, it, you know, with the perfect game, the national teams and stuff like that. There, that video is out there. Now, I've we've talked about it on this show if this is the first time that you've heard it um you know I, I do think it warrants this at this point I will tell you that I'm a, a high school varsity baseball coach in the South Jersey area so I do have a little bit of experience with prep baseball and, and the developmental aspect of it and the only reason why I really mention that is because especially when we talk about Mick Abel I think that it helps to have a little bit of context at least from from my perspective of what I see with him um and, and with Abel especially the thing that jumps out at you is that he has this monstrous frame. I mean, the kid's six foot five, he's pushing 200 pounds, and he has the ability to fill out even more. So, like, when you hear some of the comps and you hear about Strasburg, like, I think it's, it's, unfair to say that Mick Abel's going to morph into or ultimately become Steven Strasburg, but 
you see this athletic delivery. You see the long whip of the arm that gets the late run on the two-seamer. You see this athletic base that he's going to only get bigger and stronger over the next handful of years as he becomes a man. You know what I mean? You forget that this is an 18-year-old kid, essentially. And I just think that there's a tremendous amount of upside. When you look at him pitch right now, Anthony, I got to tell you, the, the two-seam fastball with the run that it gets on it, that's a pitch that can play at the higher levels of professional baseball right now as an 18-year-old. And I think that the slider is just as good. I mean, you're talking about big swing and miss potential, two pitches that I think are plus pitches for this kid. Um, and there's a lot to be excited about there. Now, Brian Barber, after the draft, talked a little bit about Abel, and he spoke about the changeup, and he thinks that that's a plus pitch right now. I think that that may be a little bit disingenuous. I think that the, the changeup is something that he's shown a little bit of, and it definitely looks like it has a possibility to become a really good pitch. But 18-year-olds just don't command changeups with consistency. That's not, that's not what high school pitchers do. And you go, okay, well, that sounds great. This all sounds really promising, and it is, but – there's always one thing that you have to consider when you have an elite high school talent. Oregon baseball, no, no offense to the youngsters out in Oregon, is not exactly a hotbed of consistent high school talent, elite high school talent when you look at the national landscape. The only thing that concerned me a little bit is that Abel's fastball was so dominant and that slider was so dominant that sometimes I think you kind of almost get bored on the mound in those situations. This is a kid that was 10-0 with a 1-2-6 ERA as a junior in high school. You know, if you don't have to lock in to consistently get out hitters at that level, you may kind of take things for granted. You may not mm -hmm. like, have all of your focus. That being said, he certainly faced elite competition in the summer circuits and, and had pretty considerable success doing so. I, I love the pick. I really did. Yeah, so I, I think that when you – and everything you said is is probably spot on. I mean, I you did more of a scouting – look at him I watched one video of him pitch taken from behind home plate and I think it was from last year um so that's all that's all I saw I, you know I liked what I saw but I was watching it from behind home plate um and what I I, I like your analysis of it about saying well you're talking about a high school player uh in an area where there's not top end talent so in a lot of ways this is the this is the Carson Wentz argument right you played you didn't play division one um, so you sit there and say, can that, even though you're not playing against the best competition, can you still be an elite athlete and, and, and succeed at the highest levels? Um, obviously a lot of people think that this kid could, I mean, he, he was on first round draft lists all across America. I mean, it, it was, it was just a matter of who, which team was going to be the one that took the risk on a high school kid, on a prep kid that didn't have to pl didn't play this year because it was a senior year and Corona came. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, I mean, that's where the risk comes in. And that's why when you say you love the pick, I'd like, I like it because of its boldness. Right. You sit there and say, look, we might have just stolen what could be the best pitcher in this draft, but you know, people were afraid to take him because he, they didn't sit to see him pitch this year, but we like him enough that we think that he'll develop in three, four years and be in this rotation. Yeah. I, I think that that's really the only reason that he was there at 15. 
I understand the reluctance on the part of scouts or on the part of organizations to say, hey, we're going to take a high school kid that we had limited data on to begin with. And then also we did not see him pitch as a senior. Mm-hmm. However, I look at it and I, I say, and Brian Barber had said this, that he's been aware of Mick Gable for two years now. If you like the kid enough and you saw how dominant he was and what he flashed as a junior, you saw what he did in the summer or he did last summer, and then you saw the video – that they submitted through the portal, all of the uh, prep kids and stuff leading up to the draft, there should be enough of a base there for you to say, okay, we're, we're reasonably comfortable with this. Now, by and large, high school kids were hurt. A lot of kids that would have been first-round picks, second, third, fourth-round picks, they were, in some cases, not even drafted just because there wasn't enough of a body of work there for scouts and for teams to feel comfortable to make that pick. But with Abel, I think that the talent was so obvious and the tools are so obvious and what he has the ability to become that it was sort of a no-brainer when he fell to the Phillies at 15. And maybe there was a team that had they seen that senior year and had a more recent look, they would have grabbed them in the top 10. Uh, again, you just don't know. It's a lot of projection at this point. But to me, when I looked at it, I said, man, this kid, this kid looks like he's got a real chance. Um, and I, I would be stunned if that did not uh, turn out for him. And, and I, I believe that he's probably going to slot in as like a number two type starter. You know, that's, yeah. that's what I see with him. Now, Martin's another interesting guy because coming into, I guess, going into his last season, like he was considered a first round caliber player. And then I know he got to play a little bit with at Arkansas before everything got shut down. Um, and he didn't have a good, very good start to the season, um, both offensively and defensively. He started making, made some uncharacteristic errors, didn't, wasn't hitting. And so his, his draft stock fell. But that's a situation where maybe teams got scared off by a very small sample size for a kid um, and, and the Phillies are sitting there saying, look, it's the third round of the draft. I mean, how many third rounders hit, right? I mean, what I mean by hit, like hit to become major league players, that you draft them in the third round and they succeed, they really make it and become really good players. Let's take a chance on a kid that for up until, you know, February or March was considered a first round talent and see if we can make it work. I, I like that pick too because of that mentality. He is one of the more talented athletes in the entire draft. Um, he, as a freshman, you know, he jumps right in and becomes a starter at Arkansas SEC, and he rips it up. And to be honest with you, had the draft taken place after his freshman year, he's probably a top 15 pick. Mm-hmm. Now, he struggled a little bit as a sophomore, and he really struggled to make contact. That's the biggest issue. He still had pop, still has great athleticism. He has a ton of versatility. I know that there's been some takes out there in the Twitterverse that he's Scott Kingery. I get that because there is just great all-around athleticism. He can play both middle infield spots, could probably play a little bit of third base, play center field. I think he has that in him. The issue with Casey Martin is that he does not consistently make contact. Now, I know that we have morphed into this era in which strikeouts are not the end-all, be-all. A lot of teams don't really care about it. Uh, But he was striking out roughly 30% of his at-bats as a sophomore and then in limited play as a junior this year. That's not going to get it done. And they're going to, as an organization, have to come up with something to to get him to consistently put the ball in play a little bit. We talk about this all the time. When you have guys that have great speed, but then they don't put the ball in play, it kind of negates that speed a little bit. So the, the bottom line is with him, you have the versatility, you have the pop in the bat, you have the speed. 
it's from a tools perspective, it's an outstanding pick. And Brian Barber said it today. He goes, you know, once it became evident that he was going to fall to us, we did not even hesitate. I mean, he was adamant about it. And, you know, sometimes guys just say stuff, especially in the wake of they love all their picks, right? Right. But uh, it, it, this was a situation where he was just like, we could not believe that he fell to us. And, uh, you know, I was a little bit surprised that he lasted as long as he did as well. And so, you know, I'm pissing positive all over the, the first two picks that they made in the first three rounds. The, the pick in the fourth and the fifth round, or the picks in the fourth and the fifth round, I should say, a uh, little, little less bullish on those two. Um, so, I mean, just real quick, and again, I don't want to spend a considerable amount of time talking about these guys, but the uh, fourth rounder, 116th overall, Carson Ragsdale out of the University of Southern Florida, six foot eight right hand pitcher, actually showed up to Southern Florida or South Florida, I should say, as um, a two way player. He could swing it a little bit too. Uh, focuses on becoming a pitcher, works in relief as both a, a freshman and sophomore as Tommy John surgery ahead of his junior year loses that completely and then made only a handful of starts uh, as a uh, junior this year. I guess he was redshirted. Um, so here's the deal. I don't like tall pitchers. I just don't. I don't like tall right-handed pitchers. I think that it's hard for them to repeat their mechanics. Um, there's not really a tremendous track record of success for guys that are six foot eight, six foot nine at the major league level. Uh, but he does have a very good curveball. It's a 12 to six, a little bit of loop, generates some swings and misses. Works in the low to mid-90s, 91 to 95 miles an hour. Um, was dominant in a handful of starts. He was really good against the University of Florida uh, early uh, in this season. He was striking out almost 17 batters per nine innings in a handful of starts. So he did generate tons of swings and misses. Um, you know, again, when you're facing a guy that's that size, you're not used to seeing that as a batter. Uh, it can kind of create some deception, create some awkward looks. Maybe that plays into it. But just a guy that I don't really know what you project him out to be. I think that his ceiling is probably like a, a fourth starter, frankly. And that there has been some talk that he may ultimately become a reliever. You know, when you have a handful of picks in, in a draft, and you gambled a little bit with your first two selections. To me, I don't know. I, I guess I would have liked something a little bit more concrete. Well, I'll tell you. and I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit more... I'm not going to sound bullish because, again, I've never seen the kid pitch, so I don't know. Um, but I, I'm a little bit more okay with the with the approach that the Phillies took with all, with all these picks in the draft. And what works for me here, and I know Barber said that they still view him as a starter. I know that that was a question that yeah. was asked. But I'll tell you, if you're striking out guys at that rate and you have that size and you have that fastball, maybe it does play – better as a one inning relief guy who can just come in and blow people away. Now, if he doesn't have that second pitch that really, you know, that you can, that you have to worry about and think about, and you can just sit dead red on that fastball. A lot of balls are going to go a long way. Right. And, and turn, be turned around against, but he's really, if he could develop that second pitch or even a third. Well, yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, I think that the Phillies, the thing that they like most about him is the curveball, yeah. more so than even the fastball. But the, the key, I think, for him and what you're talking about between the difference of, of being a relief pitcher or possibly jumping into a starting rotation, it's going to be one command because he walked a ton of hitters when he was early in his college career. He was much better in a limited sample this season. The, the second part of it is can he develop a changeup? 
and he, he yeah. throws it, but he doesn't throw it with a lot of conviction, doesn't throw it often for strikes. It's kind of just a show-me pitch right now. If they can work with him and get that changeup involved, then I think you have a possible back end of your rotation starter, which, you know, I know you, you talk about it and say, well, it's the fourth round. Don't you want a little bit of a higher ceiling than that? You grab a back end of a starting rotation major league pitcher that, that can give you a handful of years, that's a good pick, you know? So we'll, we'll see how it plays out. I mean, there is something there. I, I get what they did, um, but I'm a little, a little bit more skeptical of him. And then I don't know um, if you really looked into – their, their last pick, Baron Radcliffe, uh, outfield. Not at all. Not, uh, one, not one minute. <laughs> huge athlete. I'll tell you what. So, Barber had uh, mentioned this. He was actually recruited uh, to be a Division One quarterback. So, we're, we're talking about a really athletic kid here. Huge power from the left side. Uh, really nice swing. Has a lot of pop. But uh, a lot like Casey Martin, he struggles to make consistent contact. And so, the biggest thing here is going to be, is he, is he ever going to be a guy that strikes out 10% of the visit bats? No, but can they get the contact up a little bit? And if they can, he has the athletic tools. He has the plus power. Maybe they hit a home run there. Uh, you know, no pun intended, but maybe they, maybe they hit on something there in the fifth round with Radcliffe. So that closes out what is a, a pretty intriguing draft. It's going to be, in my opinion, fascinating to see what they do with all of the players out there across the country right now that weren't drafted. I mean, he went from 40 rounds to five rounds. Think about all of the opportunities and really good ball players that are standing out there right now that don't have a job because, you know, obviously the coronavirus spurred it, but Major League Baseball and, you know, the Players Association, they, they came to this agreement and it's, it's killing a lot of careers right now. And it, it may prevent a lot of them from even getting off the ground so here's a here's the interesting thing for me i'm curious to see if these kids take an opportunity even though it's only twenty thousand dollars to sign with a major league team just so they get an opportunity to be with a team and grow with a team and try and try and make it that way even though it's you know pennies on the dollar or do they put their eggs in the basket of saying, let's just wait a year. Next year, you'll get to see me either, you know, uh, you know, going into my into college if you were a prep kid or, um, you know, another year of college. And next year, you'll draft me instead of this year. Like, like, like what do you do yeah, if you're that kid? I, there's a lot of kids, I think, around the country that were prep players this past season. Uh, who are headed to college, you know, kids yeah. that and I can tell you from the South Jersey area, there are a handful of kids that would have absolutely been drafted. Even if the, the draft were expanded to 10 rounds, they would have gone. Right. Uh, but they weren't drafted over the last two days. And, you know, to be perfectly honest with you, I think that there's a lot of, a lot of people that if you just look at the dollar and cents amount, you, you have to kind of bet on yourself here a little bit and say like, yeah, I'll go get a free education for the next four years and make my name at a D1 school or, you know, even play at a high profile JUCO school, transfer out and get a look, you know. So a lot of these kids are going to be willing to wait three years to reenter the draft. And so a lot of kids that probably would have signed pro contracts are headed to college this fall if, if colleges are open. So 
you know, and the one other consideration with that is you do have a lot of players that are sticking around and they would have graduated, but the NCAA is going to grant the extra year of eligibility to the spring athletes. So it's going to create a little bit of a recruiting and playing time log jam. You can be a really talented 18 year old, 19 year old showing up at a D one school, but you got to go take a job from in some cases, established starters. And these are grown ass men that are 22, 23 years old. So it's going to create quite a predicament for a lot of these big time universities on the smaller levels you know, you get to the D three schools and things like that. There's just not a lot of, a lot of players that can stick around and afford to pay that extra semester to, to go, or, you know, that extra year of school to hang around to, to play baseball. So a lot of cases, those guys, even if they lost their senior seasons are probably moving on into their, you know, the next phases of their lives. So it's, it's a shame we'll see. I mean, you talk about finding value in the margins, though. The teams that go out and really do their due diligence and are aggressive in, in trying to pitch and, and sell kids on signing, there's a, a ton of ability to you know, gain a, a leg up in, in this race. So, it should be really interesting to see how that unfolds. And then the other thing that I look at is in the shame of it, across every single team's board right now, you get these kids in the fold and you want to start and you want to get your coaches with them. And, and, you know, all these kids are going to continue to work with their trainers. And you have to understand, especially when you're elite prep players, elite college players, you have your guys. Like you have your guy that, that you work with, that got you in shape, that got you to the point that you're at. That work's not going to stop now. You know, these kids are going to continue to refine and, and get stronger and, and all of that. But you as an organization just made this investment. You want your developmental staff, you want your coaches to get your hands on these players and get them going. And you're not going to be able to, at least not for, I would say, a couple months at this rate in the best case scenario. And so how much is that going to stunt the growth of these kids that were just drafted and really stunt the growth of any player uh, across a minor league system right now? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really going to be interesting for teams, not necessarily this short season, Bob, which we're going to talk about because, believe it or not, there's going to be a season. Um, at least it's starting to look that way. Um, but I think that the really interesting thing is what teams are going to look like next year or the year after because of losing the equivalent of an entire minor league season for every prospect that they have. Like, what's, what's, what are these teams going to look like in 21 and 22 you know, without without a year of development for their minor leaguers, like, are you gonna are you gonna rush kids in and say, eh, you know, trial by fire, or are you just gonna say, well, we got to suck up the fact that we lost another year of development for these kids, and they're gonna arrive a year later than we thought? Yeah, you're obviously going to have exceptions to the rule, but I would think, by and large, that you cannot take a kid that was in double A that you would have in your master plan had everything kind of gone as as you know going according to plan, you're not just going to say, hey, now you're a major leaguer. You're in our starting lineup. You know, we haven't seen you in 18 months playing a game or, yeah. you know, whatever it ends up being by the time they get back. But I don't know. How do you do that? Like, how do you say, like, we were on a, a 2021 timeline with prospect A. We haven't seen you since the end of the 2019 season. You're going to open on the big club. I mean, it's going to happen. I don't know if it's going to happen with the Phillies, but – I would think that everything kind of just freezes. You know, I think that there's guys that make it called up early in that season, but how do you break camp with a kid like that? It's, it's going to be a, <laughs> I know. it's going to be really tough. And fortunately for the Phillies, they don't have any kids that were really pushing the 
you know, pushing the breakthrough here anyway. So right, I don't, right. I don't know that it'll be a problem with the, with the local squad, but um, it, it's a shame, you know? So when I look at what they just drafted, people want to know, especially with the first round pick, when are we going to see, you know, Mick Abel? Well, he's 18 years old. I would say 2023, the second half of 2023, optimistically, when you take into account that he's not going to make a handful of professional starts this this summer. Uh, But I would say even 2024 is realistic. You're still looking at probably four years. And he would only be 21, 22 years old at that point. So it's not like – I mean, only the most special guys pitch in the majors younger than 21. I mean, really, when you think about it. I mean, it's funny. Like, we've been watching – um, the re the the replay of the 2008 playoffs on NBC Sports for the Phillies, and Kershaw was a 20 year old rookie, yeah, on that yeah. Dodgers team pitching out of the bullpen, and he did not have a great first year. I mean, his if you look at his numbers in the first year, they were pedestrian at best, yeah. if, if maybe a little bit worse than that. And you know, but I mean, you see what he became. Obviously, he's a future Hall of Famer. Did you see that the other night? It was a uh, game two, the NLCS, and Sandy Koufax is watching yep. him from yep. behind the dugout, and you're I like, know. "This is awesome!" Yeah, yeah. I know. Sandy Koufax watching Clayton Kershaw, twenty year old Clayton Kershaw. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like, you have to be that guy. You have to be that right. good to really be, you know, be be a a contributor, a major contributor, especially as a pitcher. Yeah. Um, you know, at that age. So, you know, he's 18. You're right. Maybe the third, the end of his 21 year old year, you know, probably that was 22 year old year is what you're looking at. You're probably, I would actually go so far as to say that it's more likely you see Casey Martin before you see Mick Abel. Um, yeah. And and I actually think, I think you get one picks a bust. It just, no, not at all on a different age progression. No, I think you might see Martin in 2022. I think that that's realistic. Um, yeah. if, if he progresses as they hope he progresses. Um, and one other thing about Martin, I will say, he had a hand injury uh, in the fall. He actually had surgery, and that did, according to Barber anyway, he told reporters in a conference call that that played into a little bit of his struggles in, I think he had roughly 60 at-bats uh, this past spring. So you have to take that into consideration a little bit. And I will tell you this. If he gets to Philadelphia, because I know that we kind of just focus on the professional ranks in this city. I don't, I don't know how closely we really dial into the minors, by and large, as a fan base. But Philadelphia fans will like Casey Martin. I mean, you talk about a kid that cares, that, that like loves the game. He's a grinder. Like all that lunch pail bullshit that we talk about with Philly fans and the, the hard hat and all that stuff, blue collar, he fits that mold. And so if he gets to Philadelphia, fans are going to really like the player. And one other thing, I'd be remiss if I didn't say this real quick. We had an opportunity to talk to McAbel shortly after he was drafted. And, you know, sometimes, Anthony, you know this, probably the same thing plays with hockey players, but some of these guys have all the talent in the world and they're morons. You know, they're just – they're gifted athletically, but they – they're not very cerebral. They don't really think through things. One of the things that really impressed me with Mick Abel that, that kind of just gave me like a sense of confidence about the kid was not just the way he spoke, but really the way that he talked about the game. He's not one of these kids that just says, you know, uh, I just I grip it and rip it. He was talking about what goes into refining his approach, what goes into his mechanics, how he works his slider, how he tries to generate more spin on his pitches. It was impressive to listen to an 18-year-old kid talk the way that he talked about baseball. And this is coming from somebody that coaches 18-year-old kids, you know. And I have a ton of players over the past couple of years that I, I really respect their knowledge of the game and, 
in the way that they go about it. But this was different. It was elite, you know, and um, it was something that I came away particularly impressed with. So we have the other news we have today, Bob, is the MLB made a new proposal uh, to the uh, MLBPA, the Players Association, uh, to try and get the season going. Uh, 72-game season starting July 14th, ending September 27th with the playoffs running about a month, uh, expanded playoffs, um, and players would make 70% uh, of their prorated salary, 80% if it goes the playoffs are completed. Uh, The difference would be uh, from what the union proposed. I think the union proposed uh, 76 games at 2.05 billion dollars. The MLB proposal would be 72 games, 1.55 billion, assuming the playoffs are completed. Um, so you're you're talking about uh, a little bit of a gap there. Um, nevertheless, it would be the same amount of money as there would be, or a little bit more than if they had a 50 game season at 100% pro rate. Okay, um, so the the the, the um, owners. Moved a little bit today. They're so moving. They moved, and they gave, but they put a deadline out that said uh, Sunday. Sunday, there you have to make a decision by Sunday. As Two. we as we talk about this, yes. Bob Nightingale. I just I was about to say <laughs> yes. Yeah. Two minutes ago, Bob Nightingale puts out a tweet. The union is expected to formally reject the proposal before Sunday's deadline. Even better than that is that. Andrew McCutcheon laughed out loud at it on Twitter. Uh, did he laugh out loud at it again? Laughed out loud again, okay. yes. So yeah. I don't know how this is going to play out in the next 72 hours. I, I don't. And maybe we get more news by the time we're done talking about this. This is happening in real time. But here's where I'm at with this. At, at all along, I have not said this is the owner's fault or this is the player's fault because, frankly, I don't care. And I think I'm with the majority of the American public that is consuming this news on a daily basis. Nobody gives a shit. They mm-hmm. don't. They don't care who's right. And so Andrew McCutcheon can LOL. And I love Andrew McCutcheon, by the way. Like, when you look in that locker room, he may be my favorite player. Uh, he, he really might be. And, and I get it. And I'm not saying that he shouldn't do this. It's not me. It's not my place to say that Andrew McCutcheon shouldn't tweet LOL. He feels what he feels. He's sticking up for his his teammates and the people that play the game. Great. Nobody cares about the LOL, though. Like, you're not going to gain sympathy from the public at this point with your LOL. You're just not. And it doesn't mean he's right, or it doesn't mean he's wrong, I should say. But I just – I don't know what's to be gained from doing that at this point. I also don't know how this is going to resolve itself in the next 72 hours, but I'd be willing to guess that that deadline that we are – or we're hearing about right now – is the deadline. Like, I think that unless they make meaningful progress between now and Sunday night where they say, okay, let's buy another 24 or 48 hours and iron out the final details, we're probably heading toward the conclusion of a 50-game season and, you know, your standard playoffs. And I just, when I look at it, I don't understand what the players are are doing. And it's not that I blame them, but there are two key things that I feel – that, that are getting overlooked here. Number one, you're leaving money on the table by, by doing the full prorated salary at 50 games. And number two, you're, going, you're getting concessions from Major League Baseball. You, you are getting some different concessions from the owners here. And one of them is, you know, you talk about the service time angle. Uh, you talk about uh, the, the draft pick compensation. Like, if you're willing to get the owners to budge on that, that has significant ramifications beyond this year. And 
to me, the players should be incentivized to say, yeah, we got to figure something out beyond 50 games. Yeah, I think that – and I think that they recognize that, Bob. I think that they see that and, – and that's why I'm, I'm really optimistic that something is actually going to happen here because the owners have made – I think the owners have moved further than the players have to this point. Um, and that's probably a good thing for the players because I think if they come to an agreement where those – with the things that you just talked about with the draft pick compensation, you know, being wiped out and the service time being allowed. And you look at down the road, once, once that horse is out of the barn, it's not getting back in. Right. So if they get rid if they eliminate draft pick compensation for the next two years, which was part of this proposal that they just made and, and then it goes away, it's not suddenly coming back in two years from now when they renegotiate the CBA. So you're, you're now going to be making more money three, four years from now. So if you're sitting here saying, well, we're holding our ground to protect the future players. Well, guess what? The future players are going to make a lot more money now because they can now sign free agent contracts. Um, you know, teams can offer them, you know, money on free agent contracts without worrying about having to lose a draft pick to do it. So guys aren't yeah. going to get screwed. So you're gonna, guys are going to make more money. So I look at that and say that that's where the players have to realize that they need to do something. That said, I do believe when you're looking at these proposals, okay, players' last offer was $2.05 billion. This one is $1.55 from the owners. We're obviously getting closer to what the players – players probably have a number that they need to get to before they say, okay, so what's that number? Yeah. And now we have to figure out what that number is. Is it 1.75? Are the owners willing to go that far? You know what I'm saying? That's kind of like what I think it is going to be. Um, but the question is, is that will they, you know, will they get there or will this, will the negotiations blow up before it gets to that number? That's the key question. Let me ask you this. Um, I want baseball to happen because I love baseball. I I love baseball. I I don't care if it's 20 games. I want to watch 20 games as opposed to zero games. You know, I, I want to see, I want to see it. I, I want to talk about it. We host a show that's about the Phillies. Like, that's what I – I need baseball back. And I know a lot of fans are dismissing it and saying, ah, it's only 50 games, who cares? You know, the season shouldn't even run at that point. How do you feel about it, a 50-game season? Do you, do you put an asterisk on it? Uh, do you say that this does not matter, whoever eventually goes on to win? It, it's not the same as winning any other World Series. Like, what's your interpretation of, of how this is unfolding? I don't like a 50-game season, to be honest, Bob. I just think that it's not enough. Do you feel like at that point they're better off just not playing? Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and I want base- I just you know I what want it is, man. To play too, but I mean, for I- purposes for purposes of full disclosure, to get two months of of watching something and then talking about the betting angles of it and all of that, it'd be really good from a personal standpoint, yeah, from the, the crossing broad standpoint as well. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Like to me, here's here's the one thing. Let's just even say that they negotiate and they get it to 65 games, okay? Does that do anything for you, or in principle, are you kind of in the same spot? 65, yeah, I mean, 50, look, 72 is kind of like – I mean, I was going uh, – I'm leading you here, by the way. I'm going yeah, somewhere with I, this. That's fine. Like, I'm, I'm kind of – I was good with – I was good with anywhere 80 and above, right? I was good with, like, okay. a half season and above. I'm like, okay, half a season is fine. You go 72, I'm, I'm starting to – grit my teeth a little bit, but I could probably accept 72. You start going down to 50, 60 games. It's like, we're only going to play two months of baseball and then we're going to declare a champion. Like that's, that's crap. That's crap to me. Well, here's why I think that the agreement is so important because the agreement means that there will be an expanded playoff. And the way that I look at this, 
two different points that I, I kind of want to illustrate here. Number one, when you have a shortened season the way that they are probably – this is probably what we're headed for here. So let's just say that they have a 60-70 game season with the expanded playoff. There are so many crazy things that can happen. I know a lot of people are afraid that there are going to be teams that tank and you're going to have teams that go 12-58 and 58 over a 70-game season. But I actually think it opens up the door for a lot of mediocre teams that would have fallen off at the end to be in it. And I, I think that that's going to create a compelling storyline. Now, like the traditionalist in me says, like, this is terrible. But I kind of like the idea of that shortened season creating the parody, creating chaos. And I think it's going to exist. I will tell you this. I don't believe that there's going to be a terrific appetite for a condensed major league baseball season early on. Like I don't believe when baseball comes back that it's going to be met with this wild reception and America is going to say, thank you. Thank you baseball for coming back. But what I do believe is that if some goofy things start to happen throughout that shortened season and we have the expanded playoff, I think that there could be a ton of interest generated in that postseason format. And that, and only that will save baseball's ass. If they play only 50 games with a traditional postseason, I think that we're all going to realize that this was a – I almost dropped an F-bomb. I'm going to be good. But <laughs> that I think most people are going to know that this was a joke. They play that expanded playoff, though, 16 teams. I think that could generate a hell of a lot of interest. Yeah, we can. And there's no doubt about it. And I'm going to give you – you know, as, as a guy who's covered a league that played a shortened season – uh, before, like a significantly shortened season. I know baseball had a shortened season in 95, um, but that was, like, what, 121 games? I mean, that's not quite a short season. Yeah. Um, but hockey twice has gone a 48-game season. And I'll tell you that both of those seasons were pretty damn good because every game freaking mattered, right? I mean, you couldn't, yeah. you couldn't sit there and say, oh, well, it's just one of 82. Well, it was one of 40. It was, it, you know, you lose a division game in a 48-game season, that's like losing two or three. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's brutal, right? It's Think tough. back to last year. You're the Atlanta Braves, and you get your doors blown off at Citizens Bank Park opening weekend, right? Yeah. Like, that's huge. Yeah. Look at the Washington Nationals. I mean, the Washington Nationals, I believe, were eight games, seven or eight games behind the Phillies after 50 games last year. Yeah. Like, yeah, it can drastically alter the dynamics. You're right. There, so the importance is is intensified up front, but so I mean, so I think for the purists like us, the games would be would just be right with emotion, right? They would be really intense. Like it's not just that lazy summer game that like ah the, yeah. they lost a big deal, yeah. but bounce back tomorrow. It's like each game matters that much more. So I think that there I can understand the compelling angle of it, but the, there's part of me that sits there and says, do I really need to see like the freaking mediocre Seattle Mariners like just get hot for a month and all of a sudden they're playing in the playoffs for a shot at the World Series with their team when you really look at it is not good enough, but they just happen to be playing good baseball for a short period of time. Like stuff like that, that's where I get annoyed. No, I get torn on both ends. I, I hear you. Then again, if I'm a Seattle Mariners fan and I knew that I was headed for a mediocre and meaningless season, now you've got my attention, right? So like yeah. from a 
from a macro level, no, it, it, it's probably not a good thing. But from more of like a, a provincial standpoint, it, it could really generate some added interest. And, and so it's interesting. It will be like if you scale this out, each game is really worth like one full series because it's literally a third of the schedule. So like one game is worth three games in this scenario, actually. You know, so it, it, that's the one thing that I do think is going to be kind of interesting about it. I'm also very curious to see if they will waive certain awards. Now, like I know that a lot of the contracts have incentives built into them for all-star appearances uh, for Cy Young and MVP voting. So I almost feel like that they may, because of the negotiation that they have need to keep those awards in. But can you imagine like you win the NL Cy Young this year and you made 11 starts, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, you, uh, you're the home run champ and you hit 21 homers in 50 games. So yeah. yeah. Um, it's interesting. I, w- I want to say this. The one thing that, that I find is really, uh, really interesting is uh, Jeff Passan from ESPN put a story out on June 5th. Okay, so this is a week ago. Okay, and it, 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 I thought it was a really good story when I read it. And he, he broke down the financials. And he came up with this really, like it was, a, it was a very long form story, but broke down exactly how this would work. Okay, and and really kind of said this is how it's going to. This is the best way to make it come to come to pass. And I read it, and you know, last week, and I'm like, oh, that's actually a pretty good story. I could see how where he's going with this, and I agree that this would be the best compromise. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you guess that it was almost identical to the offer that was made today? So the owners are obviously that's you know where his sources are, right? Okay, which is fine, but they knew a week ago that they were going to present this kind of offer. Like, can we just get to it? That's yeah, what, that's what bothers the me the process? most. Yeah, like, that, like, you know what you, where you're willing to go. Yeah, like, you know when you buy a house and they, they, the realtor gives you the best and final yeah. option? You know, like yeah. Blind bid at the end. Like, let's just – Just get there. Just, what do you got? Where, just like, where are you there. really going to go with this, right? Yes. Yeah. That's like, like – plan- because I think the damage that's being done – is playing out the bickering in the public. If you just basically said, look, here's what we want to do. This is the best we can do. And then you look at it and you're the players and say, okay, well, we could settle for this, this, and this. Maybe can you move on this, this, and this? And boom, and then you have it. You probably get this, had this, would have had this resolved by now, right? But the fact that you want to play it out in public and see how the people respond and really kind of try and play the emotions off each other and get the players to respond a certain way, and the owners to respond a certain way, and the fans respond to that. The, the, the soap opera aspect of it is completely unnecessary and just kills me. But this is how unions have negotiated for, I guess, hundreds of years. So You know what I find baffling is that the owners are winning the, the court of public opinion right now. And, and do you think it's just a simple matter of we all played baseball growing up and we just – we would say like, God, like, how could you not want to get out there and play? Like, how could you not want to you know, sweep and captivate the nation in a time of need? And like, I would have done anything to be a major league baseball player. Do you think it's just a matter of that? Like, or do you think it's a bad job by the players association in getting information out to the public? Because I know that there are plenty of people that are like, these, these owners are out of their minds and you know, they're so greedy. And and of course they've been turning record profit. I don't know if you saw the Twitter thread that Justin Turner uh, put out like three or four days ago, but he kind of worked through it and tried to give you like a real overview of how profitable baseball has been fine. That being said, 
I think that the average fan right now is going, the owners are stepping up. They're starting to, to meet the players' demands. Come on, players, let's go. And that's crazy to me. Well, I think it's – you're close. I think that it's more the general public doesn't quite understand business. So they don't, they don't look at what the owners are – they're seeing the owners moving and don't realize where they're pinching the pennies, right? They don't, they don't right. see it from that side. Meanwhile, they look at the athletes and they look at the players and they say, look at the money that you're being paid to play a game and you're sitting there and holding up this, holding this entertainment up for us over the fact that, you know, you can make, you got to make a million dollars less than you would have been making. I think that that's why they get pissed off with the players more so than the owners. But those that are smart enough to realize that the owners are being shysters here as well <laughs> is really are, are the people that you see saying, oh, the owners suck too, right? But I mean, the general public, the general population who doesn't quite grasp, you know, the, the bean counting that goes into any business. I think yeah. that's why they sit there and say, well, look, the owners are making moves. The players should just go out there and play and suck it up and take the money. I, I swear to God. I swear to God. We do have some guests coming up in, in the next show or two uh, that, that we're working with, and we're going to have that. But I will tell you, Anthony, the next time that you and I do a podcast by ourselves, we are going to talk about baseball. <laughs> we're going to talk about what is happening on the field. I am going to stay. I'm, I'm out. I, I can't do this anymore. I can't, we've only done like four shows since this has happened where we're talking about how are they going to get back. I hate this conversation. It's not that I don't love talking to you, and it's, it's not even that it's a bad conversation. I am just so tired of talking about this. We need to have baseball on the field. So we are going to talk about what the 2020 Phillies are going to look like under whatever format we think is coming back with when they start this season. I, I look forward to that day, Bob. I look forward to that day when we are talking baseball again. I, um, I want to go back to complaining about Vince Velasquez and uh, their <laughs> bullpen. And, you, you, know? Know what's, you know what's amazing? I got to be honest with you. It, it's, I find it really fascinating. I am so jonesing for baseball that I am actually – and I'm not the kind of person who will sit there and rewatch the old games. Yeah. I, here and there, every once in a while, I don't mind doing it. But I've been watching almost nightly these Phillies playoff games from 2008, yeah. you know. And I think it's kind of cool for my, for my son who was at the time, he was young, he was only seven when it happened. So he doesn't quite remember it that much. So we're sitting there and we're watching it and like, you know, oh, we're laughing about it. Like, oh my God, did you see that? And, oh, that play was a lot closer than they, you know, because that was pre-replay. You know, there was a play at the plate uh, last night, and we were like, oh, wow, he was out. They called him safe. And they, you know, yeah. Nobody argued it at the time, but when you watch the replay, it's like, wow, he was out. But the fact is, so, but I'm watching every game, even the ones I know they're going to lose. I'm sitting there. I watched game three the other night, right? Yeah. <laughs> Just because I wanted to watch the, the benches clear again. when they oh, threw, Is that Victorino? Corona uh, threw high on Victorino. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, I, like I wanted to see it again, and it's just – I know what's happening inning to inning. I know what the outcome is going to be, yeah. but I just wanted to watch baseball again. And, you know, yeah, I was watching uh, Brad Lidge walk a tightrope against the Brewers. Uh, yeah. What was it last week when yeah. the game, won, uh, I was at that game actually. And uh, he made that quite uncomfortable. Yeah. And then I believe actually even uh, game two of the NLCS against the Dodgers that year, it got a little bit weird at the end. So 
Um, I'll tell you what, like I'm with you. I'm not really a huge replay guy and go back and watch from start to finish, but uh, it's been really cool what NBC Sports Philly has been doing uh, the last week or two with this 08 playoff run for sure. Um, I'm not I'm not doing the KBO anymore. It was kind of cool to see the KBO on my screen for, for a week or two, maybe yeah. fire in some bets. Uh, you go to bed at, at 1 in the morning and you wake up at 8 and you, you see what happens. But uh, I haven't really been following the KBO too much. And I will tell you one positive is I'm getting a lot more sleep. And I think actually some of the wrinkles around my eyes and my forehead are actually dissipating. They're, they're going away. So, <laughs> My stress levels are down. I'm not throwing things and cursing at the TV and all that. I only do that for road games. When I'm at Citizens Bank Park, I'm very, uh, you know, I'm actually just rooting for the game to end when I'm at Citizens Bank Park. <laughs> oh, that's funny. A nice crisp 2-1 final played in a tight two hours and 35 minutes. That's, yeah, you know, that's what I'm rooting for. You know, it's funny. I, I found, uh, and I actually emailed it over to you. I found on um, doing a little research just kind of stumbled upon ESPN. And I, had to, I don't even remember this happening, but ESPN did a, a show called The Season. And this was back in the early 2000s. And they followed the 2004 Phillies from spring training to the end of the season. And they, com- they compressed it down to a one-hour show. It wasn't like we're getting now with you know, the Eagles on Amazon where they're showing week by you know. 10 episodes, right? It was, this was a one hour thing and they compressed the entire season into one hour, but their cameras were with the team like all year. And it was really kind of, I was like, I don't, why do I not remember this? Yeah. Why do I not remember this? I, I don't remember it either. I'll tell you why I don't remember it because I was uh, going through my, my senior year of high school and freshman <laughs> year of college. <laughs> so I, uh, I was out living life uh, that year. So yeah, but I, it, it was interesting. And so I, I actually, I watched it. I was like, you know what? Not bad. Like it was, it was actually yeah. kind of, it was well done. Again, this is pre, you know, the documentary era, like we're, that we're in now. Right. But I mean, it was for a one hour program, it was really kind of cool. And you sit there and, and, and the more you watch it, you say, how did this team not win? Yeah. Well, you know what? They I mean, were like, a so good you, team. You just mentioned the 2004 Phillies. So I, of course I bring it up on baseball reference and I'm looking at some of these statistics and I'm baffled by what I'm seeing offensively. I know that it was a different era. But I, I, hell, like guys that I remember hating, I'm I'm actually looking from a statistical standpoint, going, it's pretty good. David Bell at third base, yeah, it's 291 with an 821 OPS, yeah, 77 runs batted in, 18 homers. I don't remember that David Bell. I remember going to a game and watching David Bell make three errors in a game and hating him. That's what I remember. I know he hit for the cycle, but. Uh, He's the last Philly to hit for the cycle. Yeah, think, right? like Mike Lieberthal putting up a 783 OPS as a catcher, hitting 271. Jim Tomey, 42 home runs. Yeah. Good year from uh, – Abreu had Mons a great year. Abreu had a great year. What, yeah. what was the pitching staff? Oh, Eric, Eric Milton. Jeez. Well, they, they had um, – Yeah, Eric Milton, who had a really good year that year. I, I think that was the year he had the no-hitter, and then, and then it fell apart on him. Uh, that might have been it, or it could have been the year. Actually, it's, it's funny. Listen to these ERAs, right? And I know, like, back then, not, not so bad, but Eric Milton was 14-6 and six, but had a 4.75 ERA. Yeah. And Brett Myers was up and down, and, and Millwood and – Randy Wolf and Vicente Padilla, geez. Well, yeah, Millwood, is, Millwood was hurt for, yeah. for, for a part of the year. Like he, yeah. he missed like a month or a month and a half. Yeah. Randy Wolf was hurt part of that year. Padilla was hurt part of that. So they lost three of their top uh, five starters. They traded for Corey Lytle. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, he came in that year, gave yeah. him some starts. 
Paul Abbott. <laughs> uh, he was horrible. He was so bad when they brought him in. And it's interesting. So I'm watching this 2004 thing, and it's funny because they're interviewing Ed Wade, and they're talking about why the Phillies, you know, obviously they, were, they really needed to make a move at the deadline. They really needed a starting pitcher, and they really needed – they felt like they needed a center fielder because uh, Glanville got hurt, and then uh, Marlon, Marlon Bird wasn't very good. Um, so they felt like they needed a center fielder and they needed a starting pitcher. But then it said, they, you know, Ed Wade's saying, you know, when you look at what the, you know, the, the three guys that everybody was asking for, it wasn't worth it for us to make a trade. And the three guys that everyone was asking for, and they show them, Chase Utley, Ryan Howard, Gavin Floyd. And so you sit there and say, if you only had the ability to know what the future was going to bring, yeah. you sit there and say, well, you made the right call not trading Howard. You made the right call not trading Utley. Gavin Floyd? Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's weird. Gavin Floyd leaves Philadelphia, and his first year in Chicago, he wasn't very good, but then he became a 17-game winner yeah. two years after he left the Phillies. Amazing. And he actually – he's a guy that you look up and you go, dude, pitch for thir 13 years in the major leagues. It's incredible. But, yeah. Yeah, I mean, certainly uh, in revisionist history, that would be a guy you would have parted ways with. I'll tell you what, history has been very, very kind to Ed Wade, you know? Yeah. His resume looks a hell of a lot stronger now than it does when they parted ways with him. Yeah, I, I agree. In a lot of ways, he was the, the architect. I know Pat Gillick gets all the credit, but he, he built the foundation of that championship He built run. the foundation. Gillick just found the pieces that yeah. would wrap it up, right? Yeah. Um, and when you really think about the 08 team. Um, by the way, Ed Wade, like – Nice guy by like all accounts. I've talked to yeah. a lot of people that have only good things to say about yeah. Ed Wade, but like 17 year old, 16, 15 year old me who was a huge Phillies fan and hadn't seen the playoffs since I was in second grade hated Ed Wade at the time. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Yeah. I'm not surprised. But it's, it's funny, but you look at that 08 team, like all the pieces that Gillick traded for all had a major impact. Yeah. And I don't just mean in 08, but the guys that they traded for in 07 as well. They all had a major impact in the championship in some capacity, whether it was a big hit uh, or, you know, Greg Dobbs had 22 pinch hits. Yeah. Or, you know, Scott Ayer getting out of, a, uh, out of a jam against the Dodgers in the playoffs. I mean, like they all had a little thing here, a little thing there, and that's what was missing. So that's, yeah. that's where Ed Wade's weakness was, was not being able to find the pieces to, to round it off. But give Ed Wade a ton of credit. Absolutely. For building the, the building blocks for that organization. And, you know, when you look at it, when he went to Houston, he was kind of doing the same thing, wasn't given as much latitude as he had here in Philly. Yeah. But I pretty – you know, the Astros got good after he left and for, eventually won the World Series. But if you, if you give Ed Wade maybe a couple more years, maybe he's the guy that turns that organization around. Um, and yeah, maybe maybe if he is the guy that, that's there through that entire run, they don't take uh, nine years to try to get back to the postseason either. Yeah, that's what I'm just saying. So I'm surprised Ed Wade hasn't really had a, a, a legit gig again. Um, he, he actually showed that he had some ability as a, as a general manager, uh, more so than, say, Ruben did, right? Like, I would, if, I had a, if I had a pick today, who do I want as a general manager of a baseball team, Ed Wade, Ruben Amaro, I'd pick Ed Wade. Yeah. Yeah, he's uh, only 64 years old. I mean, he's a little bit up there now where I don't know that he'd be walking into a new job, although Andy McPhail did. But, uh, yeah. you know, I don't know that I would hire him now, but it's kind of amazing that he's been out of the game for a little bit while, uh, for a little while now. I mean, he, when did he actually leave Houston? Do you, do you know? 
I think it was like 15, 16. Yeah, because like 07, he gets the job. And, 15? Uh, I'm not entirely 15. sure, but yeah, I mean. Uh, I have to guess. I'll yeah. look it up. I'll look it up real quick. Yeah, it looks like actually two, 2011. Looks oh, like that, 2011. that quick? Yeah, yeah four okay. years as Astros GM. Uh, he kind of started that rebuild, and uh, when the team was sold uh, to Jim Crane, he uh, he left. So, so there it is. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I here you go. I mean, here's some things. Uh, right before before he was let go, he promoted Altuve straight from Double A without going to Triple A. Um, he uh, brought in Dallas Keuchel and George Springer. Wow. I yeah. mean, so three key players. Yeah. You know, as kids that he brought into that organization that became, you know, key cogs to them winning a world championship. Yeah, actually, here you go. I'm reading this, too. In 2015, there were 37 major league players uh, that were in the Astros organization when he left in 2011. So, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, a guy that never was really anywhere that won, but, again, helped, helped set foundations to future winners. So, Good on Ed Wade. I didn't think that we were going to get into an Ed Wade conversation here uh, today. So we really hit it all. Yeah, you never know where this where this conversation is going to go. But it was good to have a conversation yes. again, Bob. You know, we haven't talked baseball in a little bit, and we've been trying to you know get these out periodically during the pandemic. And you know, we're still jonesing for a season to come back of, of whatever length it's going to be. And uh, we'll be there every week once it happens. But uh, it's kind of tough to sit there and keep talking the same stuff all the time. But I think we're going to do something fun next week that we haven't done in a while or, or ever for that matter. And, uh, you know, I don't know, we will, uh, we'll leave people, you know, hanging on the edge of their seats. Cause I think yeah. it'll be a fun, I think it'll be a fun episode next week. Just got to iron out a couple of details. That's all. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for uh, listening again. I'm Bob Wankel along with Anthony Sanfilippo. This is crossed up Phillies podcast. We will be back next week with uh, yet another episode. We're going to probably drop this. I would imagine over the weekend. I think that this has a, a Saturday morning feel to it. So uh, yep. down on the beach, the Jersey Shore staying six feet apart from everybody. You can listen to us uh, and take you through the day, the soothing sounds of our voices. Uh, be sure to check out Snow the Goalie. I got to say, I know that you don't want to pimp your own stuff, Anthony, but you guys are on fire. I believe, what did I hear? The, the number six podcast, uh, hockey podcast in, in the United States, or is that in the world? Or where no, that's, that? a, that's in the United States. That's, okay. a tre- that's trending, and that's, on, okay. uh, that's only on uh, Apple, uh, Apple Podcasts. Um, so it's number six among hockey, all hockey podcasts in the United States. We're number 30 all time among hockey podcasts in the United States, but we are trending now in six countries. We, we added Germany this week. Germany joined, we joined the Germany ranks. Um, and is Chris Pronger uh, big in Germany? <laughs> I guess, I guess he is because he, he got us into Germany yeah. and, uh, we're number 175 of all sports podcasts globally. That's awesome. So it's, we're yeah. on our way up. It's doing really well. It's great stuff. Yeah. So make sure that if you have not yet checked that out, uh, that you do so and be sure to check out all of the other podcasts on the uh, Crossing Broadcast uh, Network. 